Well, we are in 2016, and we, it's, we seemed to go by so fast. We were just through the Advent season, and we had Advent to Christmas to Epiphany. And again, I am very appreciative of Lee preaching last week on Epiphany Sunday, closing out the Advent season. We spent Advent, as you know, with the prophet Isaiah. And we are going to start, start 2016 with another prophet, a prophet named Obadiah. And I want to encourage you at this time to open the Bible that you brought with you or take the Bible in the pew and turn to Obadiah. And I want to warn you, if you blink, you might miss it. Um, Obadiah is on page 644 in the Pew Bible. Turn to Obadiah, and as you're going there, let me give you a little bit of background on Obadiah, what I, what I can give you. Because here's the thing. Unlike Isaiah, whose history we have a record of, John two weeks ago tapped a little bit into that history in the beginning of the book of Isaiah. With Obadiah, it's very difficult for us to establish exactly who that prophet was. And there's two reasons for that. One is the Bible doesn't give us, like it does with Isaiah, a backstory. That's the first reason. The second reason is if you've read the Old Testament in a while uh, or if you want, had a concordance, one of the things you'll notice is Obadiah apparently back in the day was as common a name as Smith or Jones. So in the Bible alone, there are at least 12 other Obadiahs. And scholars assure us that none of them are the prophet Obadiah. So that's 13. So we don't know a lot about Obadiah. What we do know, all that we know really, is Obadiah was one of 12 select envoys called by God, known more formally, you might have heard this in a Bible study, known more formally, these 12, as the minor prophets. And we've interacted with the minor prophets before, but by way of review, really important you understand, being designated a minor prophet does not imply that the words of these 12 messengers are less important or significant than, say, Isaiah or Daniel or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, who are often called the major prophets. No, that designation minor, the minor prophets are described as minor because their books are shorter and their content tends to be more narrowly focused. So just understand that when we talk about the minor prophets. And as you're opened up by now to Obadiah, you can clearly see that no other prophet perhaps adheres more to this definition than Obadiah. <laughs> uh, like I said, it's one chapter. That's it. Sandwiched there in between the book of Amos and Jonah, uh, Obadiah's writings amount for about 21, 21 verses and a little bit of Bible trivia for you. If anyone ever asks you, the shortest book in the Old Testament you got it, Obadiah. And yet, despite its brevity, we are not going to spend one sermon on this book. We're going to spend the month of January unpacking it. Because what I want you to see, I hope that you see over the course of this month, is Obadiah was a minor prophet with a major message. A minor prophet with a major message. And as we begin with the first nine verses this morning, I will let you know in terms of context, Obadiah is addressing, or God I should say, is addressing through Obadiah two nations, Israel and Edom. And you'll quickly see that while he addresses two nations, one nation is being addressed with a word of judgment, the other with a promise of hope. So if you have those Bibles open, follow along with me as we read the first nine verses. This is the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. 
The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, we're, in, we're starting the new year, and this is why this, you go, this is why it's a minor prophet. Now in reading this, you realize why you never hear sermons about these books. Because this is heavy stuff. This is not the kind of stuff that we like to read in our Bibles, but it's there. And we have to interact with it. And we are going to unpack this. And I, I can tell you, we may not always like where Obadiah takes us, but it's necessary for us to wrestle with and to sit in. I told you right before we started reading that Obadiah addresses two nations, Israel and Edom. But Obadiah is unique. Obadiah is unique in that it is the only book in the Bible that is directly addressed to a particular nation other than Israel. If you interact with the other prophetic books, Israel is often addressed directly, and then the other nations are addressed indirectly. A handful, one or two, but Israel is directly being addressed. Obadiah stands out because the singular focus of God's message through Obadiah is towards Edom. There's an implied message, definitely here for Israel, but it's indirect. It's by extension. The singular focus of what God wants to say is directed towards a nation other than Israel, and it's Edom. And so for us, as we enter into this book, as many of us may be very, very familiar with Israel, its history as a nation in the Bible, we may not be so familiar with Edom. So let's talk about Edom for a second. Who is Edom? Where was Edom? Edom was to the south of Israel. If you can picture that map in your mind, it was in the, it was in the east of Jordan, the nation of Jordan. It was a narrow mountainous country that towered above the Dead Sea. That's where Edom was. Edom occupied a territory of land today referred to as the Negev. And that's where they were geographically. But the other thing you need to know about the Edomites is the Edomites were a regular thorn in Israel's side. In the aftermath of her exodus from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites sought passage through the land of the Edomites on their way to Canaan, but the Edomites refused to let them come through their land, which made their trip much longer and roundabout. And from that moment, Edom and Israel remained enemies. With, in the, in the years, the decades that would follow, Edom would often taunt Israel's misfortunes, would often side with rivals. And this history of harassment went on for centuries until it finally reaches its breaking point here. As God, through Obadiah, and by the way, don't miss in this history of harassment between two rival nations, the irony that this word comes through a Jewish messenger. 
God, through Obadiah, says after centuries of harassment, enough is enough. Obadiah's prophecy, you heard it in just the first nine verses, and it's going to get more detailed as we progress on in this month. Obadiah's prophecy is a word of reckoning against Edom. Why? Why? There are two reasons Obadiah lays out in the entirety of his message. We're going to focus on the first one today. The first reason why this word of reckoning comes from the Lord through Obadiah to Edom, the first reason that we're looking at today is pride. You have it there in your Bible if it's still open. Verse 3, God comes right out and says it. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride is the focus of the first nine verses. Pride is our focus this morning. Let's talk about pride. Let's define pride. What is pride? Pride is arrogance. Pride is conceit. Pride is vanity. Pride involves something being overinflated, something extended beyond its proper size. The best description of pride that I've ever heard was to picture the painful image of an organ of your body. Picture the painful image of an organ of your body that's swollen because so much air has been pumped into it, so much air that it's overinflated, it's inflamed, ready to burst. That picture, if you have it in your mind, that picture, the Bible declares, that's what our human ego is like. Our human ego is swollen, and therefore our human ego is painfully sensitive and fragile, right? Our egos are very sensitive and fragile, but they're ultimately overinflated. They're they're overinflated and empty because they're full of hot air. And that's why the dictionary, if you were to look up the word pride, the dictionary defines pride as an excessive sense of self-importance. Pride is an excessive sense of self-importance. And here, again, with your Bible open, Obadiah exposes Edom's pride in verse 3. When God, through Obadiah, says, You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? The Edomites were a rough, hardy, strong, capable, mountaineering people. Having made their home in the clefts of the rocky crags that towered above the Dead Sea, the Edomites prided themselves on the fact that their defenses were impregnable. In fact, if you know uh, of this location at all, the entrance to where they were, to to their location, was in fact a narrow pass between vertical cliffs. It was so narrow to get to where they were housed that a few men from the Edomite army could hold off an imposing force. And if you're having trouble visualizing what this might look like, here's the thing. You might have even visited there and not know it, or at least you've seen a picture. It's right there. Right there is the remains of Edom's capital city, a place called Petra, which in Greek means rock. And if you've anyone seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, the one with Indiana's father, this is where they go to at the end of the movie. They don't call it Petra, they call it a whole other thing, but that, they're going to Petra, that's where they filmed it. And you have this moment where you can actually see the, how narrow it is to get through to actually get to the centerpiece of the city. A city carved out of the side of a great mountain being sheltered in such heights like the nest of an eagle 
living in dwellings forged out of rocks that safeguarded them. The Edomites became self-assured of the inaccessibility of their location and therefore boasted of their invulnerability. Now, again, I've kind of already started to lay out the, the case for you, but for me, and maybe for you, I step back a little bit. You know, the Edomites are, are kind of being called out for taking some pride in their work. And I look at this, and I've never been, but I imagine if I did, and, and for those I know who have, I look at this and I go, that's pretty spectacular. That's pretty impressive. And I, I stop a little bit in this, and I kind of think, well, hold on a second. What's wrong with a little pride in your work? I mean, isn't that what we often encourage each other to have, right? Aren't you supposed to take pride in your work? Don't we encourage that? Take some pride in, what, in your work and what you do. Don't we instill that? I mean, I, 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 there's maybe a little trouble accessing, accessing what's going on here because pride's a word we use, we use in a lot of ways. I mean, follow my thought process as I'm, I'm kind of pushing back against this indictment against pride because isn't a healthy level of self-confidence necessary to our success in life? Don't we believe that? Don't we say that to each other? You need to have some self-confidence if you want to get ahead in life. So is that, is that bad? I mean, let me look at the other way. When we, when you or I take away another person's self-esteem, isn't that demeaning? Isn't that wrong? Don't we, we critique that, right? You shouldn't take away someone else's self-esteem. We believe that's a way of being demeaning, even dehumanizing a person. Don't we believe that if you lack both self-confidence and self-esteem, you tend to feel insignificant. When you lack self-confidence and self-esteem, you maybe even feel less than human. So what's wrong with a little pride in your work? Isn't pride necessary a good thing? And that's where we have to nuance how we use that word today and how Obadiah is interacting with it. Because I want to be clear about something. I need you to hear this. There's nothing wrong and everything right about having a little self-respect. Please hear that. There's nothing wrong and everything right about having a little self-respect. The key liability with pride is an overinflated or hyperextended sense of self-importance. That's the key. An overinflated or hyperextended sense of self-importance. But the question then becomes overinflated or hyperextended Compared to whom? And the answer is God. You see, pride, as Obadiah is interacting with it here, pride seeks to promote self rather than or over and against God. Now again, we still may be pushing up against this because this kind of goes against our cultural narrative right now. Because many people talk about the need for to have a positive self-image. Some of you, this is your parenting style. This is what you're told. Your kids need to have a positive self-image. Really important to affirm them. And I'm not negating that, but here's the, the part that we're missing. Here's the part that's so important. The truth is, there is no such thing as a positive self-image apart from God. There is no such thing as a positive self-image apart from God. Think about it. When our egos become independent of our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, when our egos become independent from the one who gives us life, we evaluate everything only in terms of its importance 
or unimportance to self. And that's pride. That's pride. When the universe centers around me, myself, and I, that is pride. I may have shared this story a couple of years ago, but it, it bears repeating. It's, it's often well-received. We all struggle with pride. Uh, we all tend to struggle with it, and there's no statute of limitations. But one of the times in our lives when pride is, you know, we're just teething with it is in adolescence, right? Pride. Because we're in that stage of wanting to be independent, and yet at the same time, we're dependent upon our parents. It probably will not surprise you to know that I was, I had pride in spades when I was a teenager. I was full of it. You can fill in the it, whatever, whatever you want. <laughs> and my father was desperately trying to get me to understand the big obstacle that I was putting in front of myself. And finally one day in exasperation, he grabbed me by the hand. This is a true story. He literally dragged me outside. We were in the midst of, a, of an argument where I wasn't again getting it. And he dragged me outside and he stopped and he took his hand and he put my face up and pointed it up towards the sky. And then he pointed to the sun and he said, Chris, do you see that? It doesn't revolve around you. <laughs> and I was really bummed because I thought it did. I thought it did. When we believe the universe centers around us, that's pride. When we make God in our own image rather than live out of the image of God in whom we are created, hear that. When we make God in our own image rather than live out of the image of God in whom we are created, that is pride. To get, still just to narrow this down to get to the nub here, Ancient civilizations called this kind of pride that, that, that God is invoking through Obadiah. Ancient civilizations called this kind of pride where we live as rivals in defiance of the gods. They called it hubris. Hubris. And if you're like me in high school, you studied some of those tragedies, the Greek and Roman tragedies, Oedipus, Agamemnon. Those Greek and Roman tragedies centered around the chaos, the self-destructive downfall that hubris that pride brings. That's what we're getting at this morning. And in verse four, again, if those Bibles are open, we see the hubris, the pride of the Edomite nation. When God says through Obadiah, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. In their arrogance, the Edomites thumbed their nose at God saying, we're going to soar like an eagle and not even God Almighty is going to keep us back. We're going to set our name across the stars. We're going to rise high. We're going to defy all things, all bends, all gods. But through Obadiah, the Lord makes clear, all that pride, all that conceit is not going to lift you higher. It's going to lead to your downfall. We've talked a lot about the Edomites and a little bit about me, but what about our pride? What about facing our pride? Again, and as we enter into this, I want to repeat a reasonable dose, reasonable underline, a reasonable dose of self-confidence or self-esteem is healthy. The problem is when both develop into a sense of self-importance that leads us to believe we are, we can be self-sufficient. 
It's that level of self-importance that leads us to believe that we can, we are self-sufficient. That is pride. That kind of self-sufficiency, this kind of self-sufficiency is evident in the person who says, I don't need God. I don't need God. I can run my own life without God. In my own wisdom, in my own strength, through my own abilities, out of my own talents. This kind of self-sufficiency is revealed through the person who in the midst of all of life's achievements and successes assumes all the credit and thinks that his or her plans are invincible. God can't touch me. God can't touch me. The Lord will not get in the way of my plans. The Lord is not going to stop what I purpose to do. Now all of us would probably, this would be exactly what we would define as pride. Yes, that's prideful. Yes. But beloved, hear this. This kind of self-sufficiency is also seen in the individual who suggests, well, yeah, I need God. Yeah, I need God when I'm in trouble. I need God when I'm afraid. I need God when I'm under pressure. But otherwise, all things being equal, I'm quite able, thank you very much, to make my own decisions about the person I'm going to marry. I'm quite able to make my own decisions about the company I will keep. I'm quite able to make my own decisions about the career that I will follow. I'm quite capable to make my own decisions about how I treat my enemies, what I choose to do with my money, my time, my resources. Beloved, that is no less pride. No less pride. So to recap, you might be an Edomite. You might be an Edomite. You might be struggling with pride if you find yourself continuing to look down on God from the high horse of your opinion and beliefs. You might be an Edomite wrestling with pride if you just continue to expect God to accept your terms, your judgments, your demands. You might be an Edomite falling victim to pride if you only acknowledge God when you need a bailout or a hand up. My friends, our prerogative as children of God is not one of pride. It's not to be one of pride. It's to be one of humility. Humility. And there's so many scriptures that I could point to, but I'm going to point to one that we often quote in a, for a different reason, but I'm doing it so that you actually hear the difference between pride and humility. And this is a verse that you know. It's 2 Chronicles 7.14. And that verse goes, If my people exalt themselves and pray. Wait a second, that's not right. God doesn't say, If my people exalt themselves and pray. God says, If my people humble themselves and pray. Humility. Humility, not pride, is what characterized Jesus. We can't look enough at the person of Christ. Not only because Jesus is the son of God, but also because Jesus is the son of man. Because in Christ, in what the gospel writers give us, we get to see a picture of what our humanity is supposed to look like. Of how we were created to live, intended to live. And in Christ, we read again and again through the Gospels. We see Jesus consistently modeled a posture opposed to a spirit of self-sufficiency. 
Paul picks up on this when he just comes out and says it later on that he put aside being the very nature of God and humbled himself becoming a servant. But even beyond Paul telling us this, we see it in the Gospels that Jesus again and again has a posture opposed to a spirit of self-sufficiency. And because again and again in word and deed, he repeatedly demonstrates, articulates his utter dependence upon the Father. Even when he is tempted, encouraged, and and again, we could say it's Jesus to take some credit, to say, hey, yeah, I'm the guy. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. I am the one you've been looking for. And those I am statements that Jesus says in John are not even that. Jesus, what we see consistently says, nothing I do, I do except what the Father tells me. Everything I do, I do to the glory of the Father. Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except the Father. Jesus models a posture opposed to self-sufficiency and gives, just gives us this picture of repeated and utter dependence upon the Father. And my friends, that's the thing. As followers of Christ, we are called and empowered. Please hear that. It's not just called, but called and empowered to follow Christ in this way, to find our worth, our value, in the fact of God's declared and demonstrated love for us in Jesus. We are called and empowered to find our value and our worth in God's declared and demonstrated love for us in Jesus through the incarnation, which we just celebrated at Christmas during Advent, and through the cross and resurrection, which we will celebrate in Lent in just a few weeks. Now that's That's the theory, but what does this look like? And the beauty of our scriptures is we have the Gospels where we have pictures, teaching as well, but pictures. We can look at Jesus, but the New Testament letters are where Peter, Paul, John, and others sort of try to break down in real time for the churches that that were rising up. How do we live this kind of life? What does this look like? That's why they're there. They're articulating. This is what it looks like. This is how we live out of the power of the gospel. This is what it means to tap in to the power of grace. And Paul helps us to understand what this looks like, this posture of humility. He does it specifically when he addresses the problem of pride in the church of Corinth. Church starting up there, pride is sort of overtaking the church. Paul refers to it this way in his first letter to the Corinthians. He talks about them being puffed up. Puffed up within the church. And listen to what he writes in his first letter to the Corinthians. Paul says straight out to them, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Let's make sure you understand what he said just there, the last verse. He's not saying they didn't receive it. He's saying, why are you boasting as though you did it yourself? Rather than you were given it by God. And as a counter to this mounting conceit in Corinth, Paul continues in this first letter to get very self-trans- to be very transparent and to talk about how the gospel has transformed his sense of self-worth, his self-regard, his identity. And finally in this moment, it's, I like to think of it as Paul's moment like my dad taking the church of Corinth up and pointing up. Where Paul finally says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, real important part here, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, Paul writes. And Paul will, in other letters, continue on this theme. There'll be a part where you remember this, where in another letter he'll talk about his resume. All the things he has to brag and boast about, and he says, it's nothing. It's worthless. I count it as nothing because 
Paul is demonstrating in this transparency how his ego operates in a different, completely different way thanks to Jesus. His self-worth, his self-regard, his identity are not tied in any way to the evaluation and verdict of others. In fact, it's not even tied to his own evaluation of himself. Paul puts it very simply. He knows he cannot justify himself. So what does he say? He says it is the Lord who judges him. It is only God's opinion that counts. You hold this up against what we have in Obadiah, and it's a perfect contrast. God's whole point through Obadiah is saying to Edom, Edom, you've got it all wrong. You think everything you've done is what's going to save you. You think you judge yourself, but I am going to judge you. Mine is the only opinion that counts. And Paul says, I don't care what anybody else says. I don't even care what I say about myself. It is God who judges me. The only opinion I care about, the only assessment I care about is God's. For Paul, the gospel has separated his doing from his being. His doing from his being. And this is it. This is the gospel, the significance of grace, my friends. The meaning of the cross is that our worth, our value as a self isn't determined by what we do or don't do. Our value, our worth is intrinsic. It is a gift from God. I wish I was the first person to say this, but I'm not. I'm quoting a line here, but it works. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not the performance that leads to the verdict. With Christ, the verdict leads to the performance. The verdict leads to the performance. And that is why it is so important that we hear whenever we experience the sacrament of baptism, we understand that the same words that were said to Christ are said to us that you are God's beloved child. You are God's beloved son and daughter in whom he is well pleased. Again, hear that again. You are God's beloved son or daughter in whom he is well pleased, not who in whom he will be pleased, not in whom he will be pleased if you do X, Y, and Z. You are God's beloved son and daughter in whom he is well pleased. Jesus has this set upon him before he does anything, even Jesus. The verdict leads to performance. The glorious reality of our relationship with our Creator. Our salvation, our unity in Christ is that from the first act of our creation bringing us into this world to the last act of our redemption taking us into the next, the Lord ascribes value to us, not to us, to ourselves. The Lord is the one who gives us value and worth. We do not give ourselves value and worth. And why this matters, why this is so important is because this is the key to understanding what true humility is. We use humility in the church a lot. We see it in scripture, and so we think to be a good Christian means to be humble. But the problem is, when we try to do humility in our own way, in our own strength, this is what humility looks like, or what we think it looks like. We think true humility is about berating or shaming ourselves. We think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm no good. Oh, no, it's, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm a horrible person. Oh, shucks. Oh, my gosh, I can't even believe God puts up with me. Oh, at any day, he should just strike me down. Oh, I'm a big mess. I'm a big hot mess. We think that's humility. Berate yourself, shame yourself, and you're being humble. Pastors, it's the biggest disease for a pastor. How do I win you over? By self-deprecating. By telling you how, what, a, what a moron I am. What an idiot I am. Oh, Pastor Chris, 
and I've got your sympathy. And that's just it. Why is that not true humility? Because I'm not taking the focus away from myself. I'm putting it all the more on myself. I've won you. And that's not my job as your pastor. Please don't misunderstand me. I love all of you. I want you all to like me. I'd be lying to you if I said otherwise. But at the end of the day, it's not about whether you love me or like me. It's about whether you love Jesus. True gospel humility isn't about a puffed up ego. If you will, it's about a filled up one. Filled up with what? Where our ego is so filled up with the love of God in Christ that we no longer need to fixate on ourselves. So filled up with the love of Christ that we no longer need to fixate on ourselves. This is complex, I get it. And I read something recently and I I tried to put it in my own words, but it's one of those situations where I can't say it better, so I'm just gonna quote it. Tim Keller is a pastor, he's an author I like, and I'm gonna read you something that he wrote, and what makes this even a little bit more, has some more depth to it, is it's Tim Keller interacting with C.S. Lewis. (laughs) But I think this will help you to appreciate what I'm trying to help us to understand. Tim Keller explains it like this. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from that meeting thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody because a nobody who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seemed to be totally interested in us. And then Keller goes on. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. True gospel humility is what he calls, and I love this, it's deep, but it's good. True gospel humility is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. You're gonna need to chew on that for a little bit. Beloved, if we find our worth in our performance, then we are susceptible both to pride and to the fall that comes with the disappointment of our imperfection and weakness. If we trust in what we do, whatever it is, if we trust in in what we do, whatever it is, if we trust in that to ultimately fulfill us, to finally save us, then pride will lead us outside the gospel. Buying into a worldview which says we are a self-made and self-sufficient people. And I'm here to tell you that is more and more the predominant worldview. That we are a self-made and self-sufficient people. And that sounds really good from a self-help standpoint, but understand the fine print. If you fundamentally believe you are a self-made and self-sufficient person, if that's what you want your kids to be brought up to understand and believe, then fundamentally what you are saying, fundamentally what you believe, fundamentally what you are imparting to your children is that you don't need God. 
that you don't need Christ. Today, as we listen to the Lord through Obadiah speak against the temptation, the destruction, the downfall of pride, let us have ears to hear. Pride is the oldest sin on the earth. You know that, right? Pride is the oldest sin on the earth because after all, it was pride that emptied the beautiful, idyllic, peaceful Garden of Eden that terribly severed and painfully damaged our relationship with our creator and with each other. Pride is truly the sin that begets all other sins because it's pride that inflates our ego telling us it's all about us. It's pride that hardens our hearts insisting we can make our own rules. It's pride that blindly assures us greed is good. Stealing is acceptable under certain conditions. That lying is sometimes the better option. That adultery just happens. That taking a life only becomes murder when we decide it is. That vengeance is ours. That consequences don't matter. It's all pride. And it's pride that blindly assures us of all these things, that hardens our heart, that inflates our ego, even as we are blazing the path of our own self-destruction. It's not too fine a point to say it, that pride is the sin that populates hell. It's pride that brings judgment upon ourselves rather than submitting and yielding to an unmerited, undeserved, and yet lovingly extended offer of forgiveness, of redemption, of grace. Let us not forget as we close this morning, the pride of Edom, my friends, was manifest in its principal stronghold, Petra. And it is impressive. I have never been there, but that picture blows my mind. And I imagine if I stood in front of it, my breath would be taken away. But here's the thing. It is beautifully today, magnificently silent. It is eerily lifeless. Look at that picture. If you've been there, remember, it is a location that takes our breath away, but it was once inhabited by a civilization, and it's now just an empty cave. It's a vacant doorway. It is, let's boil it down, a tourist attraction for passing strangers. It is a memorial to more than just architectural wonder. Beloved, it is a memorial to the dangers of pride. You see, that's it. The problem with being between a rock and a proud place is it leaves us on our own. It leaves us on our own for now and eternity. But the good news, the gospel, that's why we're here, right? The good news, beloved, is the Lord is faithful and unchanging. His mercies are new every morning. His promises will always come to fruition. The subheading of this sermon series is God gets the last, always gets the last word because God does always get the last word and God's last word is most certainly true. Before the inevitable judgment that is to come upon this world, our Father's standing offer of salvation remains. Let us learn from the, the, the lesson of Edom by having our stony hearts broken, our stony hearts broken by the love of God displayed on the cross of Christ. We have no cause to be arrogant in regards to such wondrous love like this. Beloved, no one, not you, not me, not us, no one has it made. 
We are made new. We are made whole when, like Paul, we boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. So let's cease our hiding. And we all hide in our own way, some more than others. Let's cease our complacency. We all can become complacent. Our complacency in nesting in the caves, the empires of our our own building. And instead, my friends, you and me together, us, let us make our home in the house in the presence of the Lord. Our lives are passing by without a reliable expiration date. No one knows. No one knows the day or the hour. But when that time comes, God will oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. So I say to you, I say to myself, turn and acknowledge the Father. Call, cry out today on the name of Jesus Christ. Live boldly, generously, self-forgetting by the power of the Spirit. Let us think less about ourselves and focus more on the glory of God who not only gives us life but offers us forgiveness, who not only grants us pardon but promises us resurrection. Beloved, let us live out of the verdict that comes before and yes, even despite our performance. The verdict that you and I, that we are by the grace of God, our Father's beloved children in whom he is well pleased. Amen.